Hello and welcome to episode 368 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. That's Ben Olson. Together we're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous. Uh, get it on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. This episode will air Monday, September 19th. You have 10 days to decide whether you're going to register for the November 2022 LSAT. The uh, deadline for that test is Thursday, September 29th. You can go to lsat.link forward slash dates if you want to look at all of the scheduled uh, tests and registration deadlines. Come to my free classes uh, three days from now on Thursday, September 22nd. I'm going to be teaching a class called Your Law School Application Checklist. The idea there is to get everybody moving in the right direction on the things that matter the most. That's going to be Thursday, the 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. If you want more information about that class or to register, just go to lsat.link forward slash Nathan. We are hiring. We always need more teachers. There's an announcement about this in the middle of the episode today. But uh, yeah, to apply, all you got to do is email um, just a screenshot of your score report and a video of you explaining a game or LR question to Nathan at lsatdemon.com. Highlights from today's show, Ben, any one thing that really stuck out? Scholarships. They're coming in early. We've said it before, but just get them. Yeah. Um, we did, we lead off with it. We might not have led off with it, but, um, it was a, it's a pretty interesting, uh, phenomenon. Someone who applied early to Arizona, not only did they get a scholarship offer from their early, uh, application, but they also got an invitation to join the binding early decision program that they didn't even apply for, mm-hmm. which if you think about how amazing that is, because it, they, they like already know what their offer is if they convert to the binding decision program. So they got the benefit of the binding early decision program without the cost of the binding and the cost is being bound. Which they don't have to indicate until March 1st of next year, six months from now. So they can sit yeah. on this for six months while they negotiate other offers, <laughs> see what else comes in. Uh, the, the ball is in their court. Oh, it's amazing. You, like, because, because why? Well, because they listened to our advice. They applied early with a killer LSAT. They applied broadly. And sure enough, Arizona State is out there early in the cycle trying to poach the best applicants. And not only that, but giving the applicant more options than they would have had if they would have applied in the binding program. Yeah. So don't apply binding, but do apply early. The question to ask is when do your applications open? And if the applications just opened and you have your very best LSAT, then you can go ahead and apply. But if you don't have your very best LSAT or if the applications opened a month ago, then I think you should wait till the next cycle so that you can put yourself into the driver's seat. Uh, And you'll hear more about that on the show. Right. All right, let's do it. All right, Ben, you put this on the agenda. This is I haven't looked at it yet. This is an article from NPR.org. 
The title is Student Loans, The Fund-Eating Dragon. Yeah, this was a podcast episode actually on NPR's Throwline or Throughline, I guess, Throughline uh, podcast. Okay. I've never heard of it before, but I started listening to this episode because I'm very interested in student loans since I have kids who are about to consider taking them out for college. And of course, we talk about this on the show all the time. And this is basically a history of how student loans backed by the federal government got started. Uh, it goes all the way back to the GI Bill in 1944, and then Sputnik prompting the government to try to fund education to get more STEM-educated people into the workforce. Uh, what shocked me most, though, was that the the I guess this shouldn't be shocking, but the intertwining of banks, colleges, and the government in an effort to fund education essentially just screwed millions and millions of kids, right? It's, it's the government trying to get in there and solve a problem and try to help people, and in particular, trying to help disadvantaged people, poor people, whatever, get an education to then get out of poverty. But the way they implemented this program <laughs> just led to some very perverse incentives. And the one thing I want to talk about here is just that when Lyndon Johnson tried to get this bill passed, uh, the federal government could not take on these, could not basically provide grants. It couldn't afford it. That's what it decided. We can't afford to give everybody grants. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give out loans. But even there, we can't do this. So instead, we're going to ask banks to do this. We're going to ask banks to give loans to students. And the bank said, no, we don't know if they're going to repay them. We don't want to take on that risk. So we're not going to do it. <laughs> and President Johnson said, okay, We'll guarantee the principal of the loan. We'll guarantee the interest on the loan. And we'll pay you a margin on top of that interest to cover any potential inflation. <laughs> so as soon, and then the bank said, okay, sure, no problem. Because yeah. basically what happened at that point, as soon as the law was passed, if you're a bank and you're not giving out a loan, you're giving up guaranteed profits. And so the industry instantly flipped and banks were putting computers in high schools to try to get kids to take out loans. <laughs> schools were also owned, somehow they had some ownership in Sally May, which is this quasi-governmental agency, right, that's overseen by the treasury but actually owned privately. And some of the owners were colleges and banks together. So it, it's just this classic scenario of the government's trying to help people, but in the end, they just create this system where the fox is guarding the hen house. And not surprisingly, loans just ballooned out of control. Colleges came into existence, especially for-profit colleges, in response to that huge you know, blow up of loans and money. And of course, tuitions were raised. And... <laughs> This is now the situation we're in. And by the way, as this was all happening, that's when the term good debt started to really take hold. 
So these these ideas, right, <laughs> didn't exist. And then it's like, oh yeah, no, no, there's this thing called good debt, good debt for school. And while there might be some truth to that in some circumstances, the way this was rolled out, it's why we're in the situation we are now. Cool. That's a uh, podcast episode from NPR, um, July 21st, 2022. We'll link to that in the show notes. If you want more on the uh, tragic student loan system, you can check out that podcast episode. Anything else you want, you want to say more about that? No, just be absolutely aware of the powers that are at play when you're considering a loan and think that somehow it's a good idea. Some of these ideas, where did they originate from, right? From the very people who are benefiting from them. Yeah. And I'm reminded of, you know, I went to that one LSAC forum years ago. I've talked about this on the podcast. I went to an LSAC forum in San Francisco, had to be 10 years ago now. And, um, well, maybe not, but anyway, they had that slide, the one about financing and it had red light, yellow light, green light. So red light was like credit cards, you know, and they were just like, oh, well, we all know that carrying a balance (laughs) on your credit card, that's a devastating, you can't do that, you know? So that's red light debt. And then yellow light debt was like a car payment, which Mm. already I'm like, really car payment. You think that's a good idea for kids? I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. How is that any better than (laughs) credit card? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess the interest rate might be a little bit better or, I mean, guaranteed the interest rate's better in most and cases. Maybe um, you're getting some value out of it, but it's well, pretty... you might need a car to get to work, in which case I kind of understand. Although, you know, just telling people yellow light car debt, then they're like, oh, cool, I'm going to go buy a brand new Mercedes, you know, um, that they can't afford. And then, but then, yeah, of course, their thing was green light debt. I mean, green fucking light, like go, like, let's yeah, go. Yeah, let's like, accelerate. This yeah, is great. Yeah. Green light for uh, student loan debt. And of wow. course this was at a law school forum, you know, and it was like some expert on legal financing telling you that it's good to borrow money for law school. And it's like, who's saying that the law schools, the law schools. Yep. The ones who get the money, yeah. <laughs> they're telling you that it's a good idea to take the loan. Yeah. Yeah. Take the loan right there and then turn around and give us the money. Good plan. So you think yeah, this is a good idea? Plan. This is a good idea. It's a green light idea, in fact. It's a green Go. light. Wow. We are uh, anti-debt. Uh, we'll, we'll be clear about that. It is not a good idea for you as a young person to be borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars to just turn around and hand it over to the law schools, especially because you don't have to. The law schools play this crazy game with scholarships where they charge everybody a different price. And frequently that price is zero and it's all public information. If you just look at the 509 reports, you can tell if your target school lets some people come for free. And if you're going to a school that lets people go for free, you should be one of those who goes for free. Yep. Otherwise you shouldn't go to that school because you're just paying money for other people's education. It's dumb. Don't do it. Yeah. All right. Um, this next one, you also put this on the agenda. We got an email. I forget the name. I'm sorry, but somebody else emailed us this New York Times story. Um, you want me to read? You want you want to read? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll put the title in here, too. So this is in the New York Times. It just came out. The title is U.S. News, US News Dropped Columbia's Ranking, But Its Own Methods Are Now Questioned. 
So there's a quote here says the broader lesson everyone should keep in mind is that U.S. news has shown its operations are so shoddy that both of them are meaningless. Dr. Thaddeus said, if any institution can decline from number two to number 18 in a single year, it just discredits the whole ranking operation. That's something, Ben, that we've been yelling about recently uh, with regard to law school rankings. We just created a new page, by the way, lsatdemon.com forward slash rankings. And you can see how ridiculously the rankings have swung both U.S. news and above the law. I mean, I used to think above the law was better, but now I think above the law is a crock of shit, too. Yeah, because their <laughs> rankings just go up and down as much well, as they, the U.S. They, news one. They swing up and down wildly. And also the rankings don't agree. Right. Like So yeah. the U.S. news rankings and the above the law rankings are just wildly different from one another. Like the number one U.S. news school is always Yale has never changed. And then the number one school for above the law is like something that is completely different. Like just not even it's just so strange. Um, here's a uh, I don't know who this Dr. Thaddeus is. I, I didn't yeah. look too closely at the so, article. Yeah, let me just tell you that really quick. So we we've mentioned him before briefly, but oh. He was the person who he was the math professor at Columbia. And keep in oh, mind, we're right. talking about the undergrad institution here. He's the math professor who is tenured right. and thus in a position to call out the questionable methods or data that Columbia was giving to U.S. News. And so for a year, Columbia didn't even have a ranking. And now they've come back into the ranking system and were docked to 18. So they were um, number two. A math professor at Columbia was like, hey, I think we're giving us news bogus data. Yep. Blew up his own school. <laughs> then, <laughs> then they were unranked. Then they came back and they're now ranked number 18th, which, yeah, yeah, that's just, okay. So your, your whole, your whole shit is just null and void. It doesn't, what can you possibly be ranking that is of use to any consumer? Yep. If you're going to tell them one year that, oh, they're ranked number two, and then a year later, they're going to now be ranked number 18. Yeah. Well, then you are clearly not providing actionable information in any given year. So what's the point of this information if it's not to take action on it and decide where you want to go to school? It's just meaningless. <laughs> it's all just it's all just a stupid fiction that they use to sell. I guess used to be sell magazines and now they sell subscription to their rankings product. Yeah. There's another quote here from an official who is in the Obama administration. And it was funny because I agreed with what he was saying, but at the same time, I don't think he goes far enough and he doesn't realize how silly these, these numbers are. Um, I'm not sure how to say his name. Mushtaq Gunja. I would give how it would Mushtaq Gunja. Mushtaq Gunja. Sounds yeah. good. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyways, he says, I don't think there's any reason that a student going to a school that's ranked 60 versus one ranked 50 is going to have a meaningful risk for their lives. I agree. <laughs> there's not any difference between 60 and 50, but there's also not any difference between 80 and 50, <laughs> right? Like it, it's even this administration official doesn't get it these rankings don't have that much meaning. So anyways, um, there's a problem. Yeah. I mean, especially given what we just said from the same article where Columbia is going from number two to number 18 in a single year, then obviously there's no difference between 50 and 60. 
I yeah. mean, there doesn't seem to be a difference between number two and number 18. Yeah. Okay. Everybody needs to stop looking at the rankings. You know, you need to talk to real lawyers and you need to figure out what kind of a job you actually want. And you need to make a path, uh, chart a path for getting there. Various different schools will get you where you want to go. You should go to the one that's going to let you go for free. Yep. Anyway. Okay. This next note, uh, why don't you read it? Sure. This is from Anonymous. I received my scholarship offer from ASU today as follows. 57% tuition or 68% tuition if I switch to a binding agreement. I have until 5 p.m. on March 1st of 2023. Okay, so... That's in six months from now to decide to enroll in the binding agreement. So I followed up with this particular applicant and I got a little bit more information. What they're actually offering here, this is somebody who applied to ASU shortly after they opened their admission window, which happened in August this year. Mm -hmm. And this student did not apply to their special binding early decision program. Rather, this student just applied early. And not only did they immediately get an offer of 57% scholarship, but they also got an invitation if you would like to switch into our binding agreement program, the early decision program that they have, that you would, that this applicant would get a better scholarship. Yeah. 11% better. Okay. So it's just yet another data point in favor of applying early absolutely does provide meaningful benefits to applicants. I mean, if you hear somebody telling you that applying early does not give you a meaningful benefit, I just don't think they can possibly be right because we have multiple emails coming in constantly telling us that good things happen to people who apply early. Notice that this is somebody who is not applying binding and is nonetheless given the option to take the benefit of the binding early decision program without having the risk of the binding early decision program, right? Like this applicant gets to hold on to this offer all the way up until March 1st of 2023. That's crazy. And then they can decide. Yeah. And at that point, they can say, yes, I would like to take the higher (laughs) offer because uh, they're going to know a lot more at that point. What other offers did they get and so forth? If they would have applied binding, they might not even have gotten that offer. I mean, they could have got a worse offer if they would have applied binding and then they would have been bound. Yeah. And instead, you know, it's like you need to just tell all these schools to fuck off with their fictional early decision programs. You need to create your own early decision program. The way you do that is you apply early. Make them make early decisions about you, because if you apply in their binding early decision program, what's actually happening is you're making an early decision in favor of them. Yep. And that's not what we want. We want them to have to be bidding on you. Yep. Keep those uh, emails coming in, y'all. We really want to hear what offers are coming in and when they're coming in. Um, send us as much information as you can, and we will disseminate that information. We see ourselves as firmly on your side in this negotiation with the law schools. And, uh, you know, they're experts in these negotiations. They do thousands of them. They're constantly negotiating. 
with hundreds or thousands of different applicants. Yep. And uh, you're at a serious disadvantage. Um, but maybe we can help if if you let us know what kinds of stuff you're hearing. Uh, it's help at thinkinglsat.com if you want to email the show. All right. Great. This next one is from uh, Brad. It says, oh, this was a success story. And uh, Brad is a recent student of ours. And Brad uh, took the time to write out a thoughtful email. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Brad. Brad said, is, this is one of those, uh, you know, Ben, we get those emails every time somebody leaves the demon, right? Yep. And they say, um, you know, what basically we're asking, like, hey, what would you change if you could change anything? Yeah. And so, like many of them come in with like nothing. You changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> that phrasing, too. I wonder if they're just picking it up from the podcast or what. But it's like it's so many of how them. many people say, I know. That. Yeah. So I've been responding to those with like, hey, could you say a little bit more about that? We, we really want to know what's working. Yeah. And uh, so this is what Brad said. Um, okay. He said, my LSAT journey began in January 2021 with a unnamed subscription LSAT product upon the recommendation of a friend who was at Duke Law. I was taken aback by their massive flow chart depicted in their video for logic game strategy. And I figured that there must be a better way to go about it. I randomly found the Thinking LSAT podcast and was immediately hooked. My diagnostic was a 151 on a practice test. I binged the podcasts while delivering pizza and brought my logical reasoning down to a consistent minus two just from podcast tips. Then I bit the bullet and subscribed with the basic demon program. That's $95 a month. In about a month or two, I got up to a 160 where I was stuck for a while. Okay, already making good progress. Yeah. I got myself a live membership, and that helped me to really view myself as someone who wasn't going to sell myself short on this test. I got up into the 170s, and my last five practice tests are as follows. 170, 172, 169, 174, 170. I got an official 170 on the August test, and I was thrilled. So that's 19 points improvement. Brad continues, you guys make it so simple and digestible. You advertise to take it one question at a time and one sentence at a time, which helped me to feel like there was a clear path and it was actually possible rather than how this other website showed me these 100 things I needed to learn slash memorize. I love that the demon wants students to solve the question rather than guess. LSAC has been able to defend the correctness of their questions in court, so there is a definitively right answer and the rest are definitively wrong. Joining live made such a difference for me. It gave me a sense of community, and though I didn't always participate as, as much as I probably could or should have, it really allowed myself allowed me to associate myself with these other badasses I was in class with and view myself in the same light. The live classes helped me helped to put me in the mindset of someone who simply doesn't miss questions. Ben, the gamification through drilling has helped me so much. I would find myself staying up late to get one more question right or up to up to, or to up my scoreboard one more point, all the way to a 97 score on the LR dashboard. Wow. I appreciate the different explanations. 
There is an explanation that works for everyone. And if not, then there's the ask button, which I absolutely abused. <laughs> if you are serious about getting your legal career off on the right foot, drink the Kool-Aid because everything you guys preach is legit. Stick with it. You cannot cram for this test and you cannot force change. You can only keep practicing and allow the change to come in its own time. Trust me, it will come. I'm now applying with a 170 rather than a 159. Absolutely life-changing, and I cannot thank you all enough. All the best, Brad. Cool. You want to say it or you want me to say it? Take it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got a 172 and a 174 in your last five PTs. I understand that you're thrilled with the 170, but you could apply this cycle with a 170 or you could apply next cycle with a 172 or a 174 or a, some other 170 higher than 170 and uh, only better things. You know, you can change your life again, essentially. Yeah, it's crazy. It's 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 wonky how much weight this test has. Um don't let it go to waste. Seems like you have the wherewithal to keep going. 97 on the dashboard. That's out of 100 points. That means of the last 100 questions he's done in logical reasoning, the vast, vast majority of them were level five, and he got almost all of them correct. That's a lot of shit. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to get a really high score on that dashboard. Yeah. So, okay. Thanks, It's harder Brad. than the actual test. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. All right. Pearls versus turds. This yep. is from Anonymous. Yep. All right. Well, let's take a look. This says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm emailing you today to present you with a pearls versus turds suggestion that I came up with myself, all caps, during my <laughs> September LSAT. <laughs> okay. Uh, this suggestion features the use of control F, which I know that you have frowned upon in the past. I'm a very anxious person, and I know that there are many LSAT takers who are as well. One of the habits that many anxious LSAT takers have is to casually glance at the timer or keep an eye on it through peripheral vision. Oof, that is not good. That's a bad habit, that's for sure. So if we could fix that bad habit, that would be great. How's Control F going to do that? As we know from past episodes from the Thinking LSAT podcast, keeping track of the timer is a distraction from doing the work of solving each solution. The solution that I came up with is simple. Use Control F to bring the find bar to bring up the find bar and cover the timer. You shouldn't actually use that bar to do any searches, just bring it up so that it covers the timer, as well as the myriad highlighting options that LawHub offers on the official test. This helped me tremendously to focus on solving questions on test day. Um, You can hide the timer, can't you? (laughs) I was under the impression that you could. I know that on the official test, you can click the clock to turn the clock off. And you can do that in the daemon as well. I'm not sure, ironically, I'm not sure if you can do that in LawHub. I think they're using the same platform. One would hope. I mean, that's what I've heard is that people are like, I'm using LawHub so that I can use the exact same interface. I don't think you should do that. I think you should do your tests in the daemon. Um, Our interface is fine. And I mean, it's better, (laughs) but um, you should just keep everything in the demon so that you can use the explanations that are in the demon more conveniently. That's the point after all is to learn in the demon you can, and on, and on the official test, you can just click the clock to turn the clock off. Now the control F thing, I guess I can see a couple benefits. 
if it works, if you don't have to keep, I hope you can just do it once and then it'll stay up for the whole, the whole test. If that's the case, then it, it could cover up the little graphical representation of how much time you have left. Cause that still stays there. Even when you do turn off the clock and even though you yeah. can't see the seconds clicking, you know, ticking down, you can still kind of see, Oh, I'm a quarter of the way through. Yeah. I'm a half way through. I'm three quarters of the way through. And yeah. if that's distracting you, then I guess this control F can help with that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a big black bar, so I don't have a problem with a black bar. <laughs> I'll let you judge it. Pearl, turd, tie. I'd say it's uh well, okay. So the green bar does stay there and it keeps counting down. So if that's distracting you, yeah, go for it. Control F. But Lock if <laughs> But if you don't already know, because I mean, we don't know whether this anonymous actually knows this or not. I mean, better than this is click the clock, turn off the timer. Well, yes. But even if you do that, you still have the green bar. You have the bar. Yeah. So you can see the countdown bar. But that bar moves very slowly, like not fast enough that you're going to sit there watching it. You might just keep rechecking it. That's probably the problem. You keep thinking about it. That's just whatever you can do to stop thinking about it. I'm not going to say it's a pearl, but I'm going to say it's not a turd. All right. We'll give it a tie. Scoreboard is now up to uh, 20 pearls, 66 turds, 25 ties. If you have a pearl versus turd candidate, you can email help at thinkinglsat.com or find us on social at thinkinglsat. This next uh, email is from Anonymous. It says, hello, I'm a transfer student who graduated high school early at age 16 and transferred to UCLA within less than a year, spent at community college with a magna cum laude standing. I'm a junior now at UCLA at age 17, and I'm planning on applying to law school during my senior year of undergrad. I am a Muslim, Middle Eastern American, more specifically Egyptian. While my family is very well off, my father and grandparents are all immigrants, and we have experienced our fair share of complications that range from prejudice to health issues and hospitalizations. I have also been working multiple jobs for the past year or so, as well as internships. Do you think this is a good enough reason to write a diversity statement on my applications? If so, what should I include or omit? Uh, I I can't say that I'm excited about a diversity statement because your father and grandparents were immigrants. You're not an immigrant. You were born in this country. So maybe the fact that you're Muslim, Middle Eastern could could be something to talk about. Um, But I don't know that I'd talk about your parents being immigrants. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I just don't. People think it's going to do something more than what it's actually going to do, right? I mean, you're going to check all the boxes for your race and ethnicity stuff. And if they determine that they need more of that, then they're going to give you credit for that. If you want to write a short essay about it, I think that's fine. I don't, yeah, I don't think that too much stuff about your grandparents is going to be very compelling there. It's they're they're supposed to be learning about you and your grandparents are part of your story, but they're not that much of your story. Being Muslim Egyptian in, you know, the pretty racist United States 
I can certainly see how that caused lots of problems and complications. And if you want to write about your own personal experience, then I think that's great. Sure. I would decide what your point is, though, because the second you then start writing about your multiple jobs and your internships and stuff, then it's just now it's a very muddy like, what's your point here? Yeah. But being Muslim in America, <laughs> I am sure that you have experienced lots of stuff, and I think that would be totally appropriate to talk about your experience on that diversity segment. Yeah. Also, stop worrying about it. You need to get your best LSAT. Like, that's the thing that's going to actually make a difference. Oh, and before you do that, make sure you're getting straight A's in your current classes. Yep. You're still quit these jobs, quit these internships. If you're not getting straight A's, get straight A's and get the very best LSAT you can get and apply early whenever you're going to apply. All right. Here's another one from Anonymous. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I recently struggled with a must be true question that had a bunch of conditional statements in the passage. What really tripped me up was that in one of the conditional statements, the sufficient condition was itself a conditional statement. Something like if, if A, then B, then C. I found it difficult to understand what they were saying and what must be true. Do you have any advice? Thanks. Honestly, it sounds like you figured it out. I mean, you... Like you took the time to write this out to know, you, you figured out that the sufficient condition was a conditional. You wrote us in an email that it was something like if parentheses, if A, then B, then C. Well, you articulated it perfectly in your email. So I think you understand it perfectly. I mean, I'm sure we, we don't have the actual question in front of us, but what it must have said is, you know, if... It's true that if George gets the loan, he will buy the house, then, you know, whatever thing he'll be moving next month. I think I know what question it is. This is, this is one of those kinds of questions where it doesn't happen very often. And I'm betting it's question. It's, it's probably a question. I think that's in the, it's either in the thirties or in the fifties, but, um, not the forties though. 30s or 50s. <laughs> Actually, the reason I say that is because I taught so much out of that, you know, the that 40s. Uh, the 30s, the book that, oh. that had the 30, 30s test. And I taught out of the book that had the 50s. And I remember so this being one in of one of those books. But anyways, eh, it, it's a one off question. But the thing is, is you can understand it. Like you, like Nathan said, you've broken it down and I wouldn't get too tripped up. You're unlikely to see very many other questions like this. And you seem to be on the right path. The way you understand these things is you understand the conditional inside of the sufficient condition first. And then once you get your mind wrapped around that, you step back a little bit broader and you figure out what the whole sentence is saying. But that's what we do with all sentences. In reading comp, some of these sentences are 11 lines long. And what you need to do is understand what the subject of the sentence is. Oh, okay. So who are they talking about? They're talking about these people who have been defined and clarified in a million different words. Okay. Now that I know who we're talking about, what are you saying about them? And then you continue with the sentence. You're doing the exact same thing. You're just doing it inside of a slightly more formulaic sentence. I think people need to stop trying. It's very, it's told it's human nature. I mean, you know, so I, I understand your instinct. Your instinct is good, 
to try to extrapolate this one question into a bigger issue, but you're, there is no bigger issue. It's just this question. What you need to do is you need to understand that exact question. And the way you do that isn't by asking a bigger question, like what do I do in situations like this? The way to understand this question is you just ask questions about this actual question. And if you Until were a you demon subscriber, it. I would tell you to just watch the videos, read the written explanations and use our ask button so that our team of tutors can get back to you and help you to answer this actual one. Not we just don't have like big picture advice for what to do in this esoteric, like tiny little area of LSAT logical reasoning. It's well, about that, that is, one. <laughs> that is the big picture advice. Learn and understand individual questions and you will naturally start to understand yeah. a bunch of other ones that happen to be similar. Yeah. That, in ways that you may not understand. Yeah. That one question. Okay. Um, thank you for writing it. Next one is coming from M. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Do you have advice on avoiding yield protection? Yeah. Basically, don't worry about it. I plan to apply in fall of 23. My UGPA is a 3.52 for a business degree eight years ago. Well, okay, so your grades are mediocre. I don't think you need to worry about yield protection. I mean, nobody needs to worry about yield protection. There's nothing you could do about it. Apply and see what they say. Yeah. <laughs> if they yield protect you, then they're stupid or they're smart enough to realize that you'd be stupid to go to their school. So why do you care if you get yield protected? I have a 4.0 from a master's program and related work experience at a law firm in the area in which I intend to pursue. You tend to pursue, you intend to pursue that law firm or that area of law. I don't know. My practice scores are in the upper 160s and I don't see any reason why I would be unable to get them higher. I'm looking at schools in Chicago where I live and Boston due to my husband's job. And I'm considering where I'd be willing to practice after school. Both cities have a wide range of schools ranked from top tier to 150 plus. With my UGPA being low, the estimator suggests I would receive full tuition at the schools ranked near 100 or lower. Unless I score in the upper 170s. With my current practice scores and GPA, I'd be considerably higher than their 75th percentiles for several of the schools ranked 100 plus tips on avoiding yield protection. Thanks for all you do. Wait a second. Is M telling us that the scholarship estimator actually does yield protection? That can't be. No, no, no. What M is worried about is that M is not going to get into the top programs in Chicago and in Boston and therefore is going to want to go to the lower programs, lower ranked schools for free, but is concerned that he or she won't even get, oh, he, she won't even get into those programs. They're stats debating is what they're doing. Well, if, if you apply to one of these schools and it's the kind of school that's going to want to give you a full ride, I think they're most likely going to do that because these lower ranked schools Super low ranked schools, I don't think they're playing the same game and they're not worried about the yield protection in the way that maybe the very top schools are. But even then, just write them an addendum or something explaining why you want to stay in Boston and why you're applying to their school. 
then they'll be like, oh, she's serious. Okay. Also, worry about all these issues after it actually happens. I mean, if they waitlist you and you think it's a yield protect waitlist, I mean, you write a letter of continuing interest and you tell them that you're committed to the area and you're serious about practicing there and you really would love an invitation to go to their school. It's just not the kind of thing that you need to plan ahead for. I kind of wish the words yield protection had never even come into our vocabulary, right? It's, just, it's not anything that you can take action about, really. You're sort of like worrying about a problem that won't possibly happen for months and probably won't happen at all. I mean, this <laughs> M's not even applying until the fall of 23. Yeah. So we're worrying about an issue that's a year from now. Plus, I, I just think it's highly unlikely, too, that all these schools are going to yield protect you out. Of course not. Somebody's going to say, <laughs> wait a sec. This is really good for our numbers. We want you. Hey, call them up. <laughs> I've been rejected everywhere. And they're going to say, fuck, you have great numbers for us. We will take you. And unfortunately, yeah. at that point, you might start paying. You don't want that. <laughs> No, no, you're going to get tons of offers. Just make sure that you apply early, broadly with the best LSAT you can get. Chicago by itself has, I'm sure, enough law schools that you're going to get a range of offers. Same with Boston. If you apply in Chicago and Boston, even better, maybe one or two schools yield protect you. It's just not something that we really hear about. We, we don't hear about overqualified applicants getting waitlisted. It's very rare. Yeah. All right. You got this next one from Logan? Sure. Logan says, Nathan and Ben, if you haven't heard it enough already, thank you. Thanks for all the work y'all do to make the LSAT demon the greatest LSAT study program on the market. Well, thanks. We agree with that, but um, <laughs> glad you do. Question time. I took the August LSAT and got a 173. My practice test scores are in the mid 170s. Should I take the LSAT to get... The additional point for Harvard and Yale's median. On the one hand, I could retake the LSAT and get a higher score. On the other, I could retake and get a worse score. Each seems plot possible considering the variance. I'm registered for the September LSAT next week, but I don't feel like I'm substantially better at the LSAT than I was in August. In my naive brain, LSAT preview is appealing, enabling me to cancel my score if it is lower than 173. That said, if I retook the LSAT with my score pre with score preview and scored a 170, 172, does it even matter if I cancel since I have a 173 on record? Note, I have GI Bill money if it matters. Okay, so I don't think score preview matters, but for the, for Logan, I would say just buy it so that you then have the will to go take this test <laughs> and get a higher score. Yeah, or don't buy it. Just go take the test again. They only care about your highest score. You are likely to score higher or lower. The lower ones don't count. The higher ones do count. Take it again. You have practice tests on record that are higher than your 173. If you're serious about Harvard and Yale, yeah, take it again. Yeah. <laughs> 173 is not impressing Harvard and Yale. Also, don't try to get one more point to get to their median. If you're serious about Harvard and Yale, you wouldn't be trying to get Harvard and Yale's median. You would be trying to get near perfect so that you can show Harvard and Yale that you're Harvard and Yale material. 
Like you want to make the best possible case for yourself, not just get to their median. Sure. Yeah. So that might mean applying next year. A quick note about the GI Bill stuff. I mean, sometimes that money expires for, for some people. They have to use it on themselves. And for some people, they have to use it in a certain time period, I believe. But for other people, depending on how long you stayed in the service, um, you can use it any time during your life. Like you could use it 30 years from now. And by the way, Ben, it's automatically inflation protected, right? Because it's just years of school. Mm -hmm. So school is wildly overpriced now, but that ain't going to change. And law school, you can get scholarships for law school. So even if you have GI Bill money, why would you waste it? Not only that, but sometimes you can use it for your kids or cousins, other, other people in your family. And if you don't have to pay for law school, I think you'd be stupid to pay for law school, regardless if you have this GI Bill money. You, you could use it for yourself later or someone else. Logan retake continues. It. Yeah. yeah, retake it. Also, on another topic, you've mentioned wanting to hire former students. Could you talk more about that? Is there an LSAT score threshold? Yeah, 170 something, 99th percentile preferred, but 170 something, we will talk to you. The thing we really want to know is that you have drank the LSAT demon Kool-Aid. We want to know that you're going to be teaching the way we teach, the way we in 2022 think about the test. So if you're a listener of the podcast and a student of LSAT Demon and you scored in the 170s using us, then yeah, we absolutely would like to hire you. I just need a screenshot of your score report and a video of you teaching either, I don't know, a logic game or teaching a logical reasoning question. It doesn't really matter. I just want to see how you explain the test. Um, and you can email me directly. I'm Nathan at lsatdemon.com. We're actively hiring right now. That's probably always going to be the case. So if you're uh, a listener and a student of ours, yeah, we would love to bring you into the family of teachers. Teachers and ask button correspondents, right? <laughs> yeah, which are kind of the same thing. I mean, I, that, that ask button teaching is a special kind of LSAT teaching. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's hard. Like you've got to, you know, decipher people's emails and then respond in a way that's helpful. And if necessary, update our existing written explanations to make them more useful for future students. So it's a fairly high level task to work on our ask button. Thanks, Logan. All right. Brennan writes in and says, Hi, Ben and Nathan. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. I'm on episode 186. Oh God, I hate when people do this. Halfway there. <laughs> and you guys mentioned to connect you to our pre-law groups. I am president for the Undergraduate Law Association Club at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and would love to connect. Past leadership made a discount deal with test masters, but their material looks like garbage compared to the demon. <laughs> Thanks. Brennan. So is Brennan going to ever hear this response or? <laughs> yeah, Brennan, four years from now, when you get around to listening to episode uh, 386, sorry, 368, um, you will hear us say, what do you want to say about our uh, pre-law association connections? 
Yeah, we have uh, email help at lsatdemon.com yeah. and they can connect <laughs> you with what you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. We have, by the way, if you're curious about the demon or you have any questions like this, I mean, Logan's question too about like, hey, hiring former students. To ask questions like that, you can always just email help at lsatdemon.com. Uh, they'll probably get back to you faster than we will. I manage the podcast agendas and I respond slowly to those uh, help is going to be there every day responding. So yeah. sure. We'd love to connect. I actually did email Brennan directly because Cal Poly, I mean, that's somewhere that I like to go. San Luis Obispo is an amazing place. Hmm. And I thought, Oh, you know, this winter I might be passing through town and I could do a thing for your free law association. But then it was, we've been going back and forth on whether, you know, Brennan's got a big enough audience to justify a live appearance, but hopping into one of your zoom meetings that could, that could happen uh, quite a bit easier. So yeah. Anyway, thanks for getting in touch. Uh, you got this, this next, next one. Yeah. Anonymous. This it looks like anonymous as well. Okay. Dear Ben and Nathan, I'm reaching out to share my non-traditional fee waiver application experience and to thank Elsa demon for the help through this process. I'm a college student who files taxes independently of my parents I pay all of my own bills and I won't, wouldn't be able to afford to take the LSAT without some sort of financial assistance. My individual income falls into the range of eligibility, so I began the fee waiver application. I was shocked that after I indicated my IRS filing status to be, quote, independent, LSAC still required me to submit my parents' tax returns due to the fact that I'm under the age of 23. When I contacted LSAC to inquire about the exemption about an exemption from the parental tax returns, they said that they rarely grant exemptions and listed the situations in which they do. None of the conditions necessary for exemption fully applied to my situation. I felt discouraged and sought advice from Jen from LSAT Demon after a class in early August. Jen, by the way, is, uh, manages our help desk and does a wonderful job. Jen shared some advice and encouraged me to continue with the fee waiver application process with, with confidence that LSAC would eventually consider my unique circumstances. After a month of communicating with LSAC, I was able to obtain a letter from a counselor who could attest to my financial independence. After submitting this letter, my fee waiver was approved. If it wasn't for the numerous LSAT Demon podcast episodes about the fee waiver application, I probably wouldn't have applied in the first place. More importantly, if it wasn't for Jen from LSAT Demon, I might have thought getting the fee waiver approved was impossible. I really appreciated Jen's willingness to listen to my situation and provide advice after a free Demon class. I actually ended up signing up for Demon Live because the instructors were so helpful and provide great tips and advice. Well, that's great. And hopefully you got the discount. I'm sure Jen gave that to you. In any case, the fee waiver has opened so many doors for me and getting it approved was a huge relief. Thank you, Ben, Nathan, Jen, and Elsa Demon as a whole for all of your help. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, great Don't news. Um, thanks, Jen. Yeah, that's a victory for Jen more than anything else. Um, thanks, Jen, for helping that student. That is fantastic. Uh, LSAT fee waiver, if you or LSAC fee waiver, if you get it, we've talked about this a lot on the show. That LSAC fee waiver is worth like least a couple thousand dollars pretty easily. So yeah, you should apply and you might qualify even if you think you don't qualify. There's there's ways. So um 
give it a shot. Worst that can happen is you get denied. And even if you do get denied, you can always appeal. Yeah. All right. This next one's from Shepard. It says, Dear Ben and Nathan, I wanted to reach out and thank you for helping me on my LSAT journey. Exclamation point. I started studying in May of this year and took my first official LSAT in August. I received a 174 and I could not be happier. Exclamation point. (laughs) I started with a diagnostic score of 156. Okay, so 18 points. After using the LSAT trainer, my next practice test score decreased to a 151. That could just be randomness. I mean, it also could be them telling you to read the question first on logical reasoning and you just failing with that dumb method of doing LR. Sure. Um, We don't do that here. For the next month and a half, I went through the entirety of uh, an unnamed online LSAT prep. This was a mistake. Most of what they tell you is theory that subtracts from one's ability to fundamentally understand the test. I found the Thinking LSAT podcast in early July and everything clicked. I got a demon free account and threw everything away that I had learned from this unnamed website. Within the month, my practice test scores jumped from mid 160s to the mid 170s. I truly believe that the LSAT demon approach is the best approach, and I can't thank you guys enough for doing what you do. P.S. If you're still hiring LSAT tutors, I would love to submit an application. And yeah, all you got to do is email me, Nathan at LSATdemon.com. Again, screenshot of your official score. Don't need to get an official score report from LSAC. Screen report, a screen shares, a screenshot is fine. And a video of you teaching one LR or one LG. And we'll uh, see if we can get the ball uh, ball rolling. This next one is from Jay. Yep. Hello, Ben and Nathan. Exclamation point. I'm a new <laughs> listener to the Thinking LSAT podcast, and I love the content you both are putting out there. I have a question concerning what to do on the day and the day before the test date. Okay, I heard countless, quote, most effective advice, and I am unsure what to believe as accurate or inaccurate. Here's some of the advice. Do some stretches. Cardio is good. Meditate. Don't do anything. Pray because you need it. While you're at it, clap your hands like a seal. For Christ's sake? Wow. I don't, where are you getting your advice? <laughs> Lots of these suggestions sound like they belong to the turd, not pearl pile, but I'm curious your, to hear your opinions. What is your advice for getting ready before and on the day of the test? Thank you again and keep up the fantastic work. I think the clap your hands like a seal for Christ's sake is Jay making a little bit of a joke. I don't I'm I assuming don't think so. <laughs> Jay actually read that advice anywhere. Pray because you need it. Yeah, that's some very bad advice. That's magical thinking, um, you know, like in lieu of actual preparation. You you pray instead. I'm all in favor of stretching. I'm all in favor of cardio. I'm all in favor of meditation. But then we get into this whole realm of day of day before advice. This is in all caps. Don't do anything. And I, I used to kind of be guilty of that. I mean, I love the movies. I do think going to the movies is a really great way to just kind of shut off your brain and shutting off your brain the day before seems like a good thing to me. I did that. I went to a movie the day before. And so I'm fine with that stuff too. But I, the thing, the thing I don't want people to do is to fall into the trap of like 
thinking that they have to perfectly manage the day before and the day of the test. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, when you say, Hey, you like stretching, you like cardio, you like meditating. I think these are all great things. If they're just what you've been doing, my main advice is just do what you've always been doing. If you happen to eat a snack before you take your practice test because you get hungry, yeah, just do that. It's it's another practice test. That's our real advice, right? Every official test is just one of the practice tests that hasn't been released to the public yet. So whatever you do for your practice tests, do that on test day. Don't do anything different. If you if you should be doing something different for your practice tests, then you should be doing them all along. <laughs> Yeah, if you normally study the day before a practice test, then study the day before your official test. If you normally take the day off before you do a practice test, then take the day off before you do your official test. Um, if you normally do yoga and cardio and meditation, then do all those things because that's part of your normal routine. But like if you don't do those things ever and then all of a sudden you like go to yoga class, run a 10 K meditate for an hour, <laughs> like all Which the day people have done. The test. Yeah. People have done the whole big breakfast thing. They're like, Oh, I never had breakfast, but today's the day. So I'm going to have eggs and oh. waffles. I'm going to have bacon. And then they're like conked out in yeah. section two. We've right. heard it. We've heard oh, it all. Absolutely. We've heard people start drinking coffee the day before or the day <laughs> of the test. We've heard of people quitting drinking coffee the day of or the day before the test. Yeah. Equally stupid ideas. Um, we've heard of people, <laughs> this is a blast from the past, but we, we come back to it every once in a while. Um, remember that student who was, he like went to bed super early. He had to manage his whole sleeping the day before the test, but then, then he, he couldn't sleep. Yeah. So then he was up like pounding a bottle of NyQuil in the middle of the night to try to knock himself out. And then he was like taking the test all zombified. Just don't do any of that shit. You, you got to stop giving the official test more power than a practice test. Yeah. And so along those lines, here is our advice. Do what you've always been doing. But if you can't do that, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter the only thing you have to do is answer the first question of the test. Right. That's the only, that, who cares whether you come there and you're in a bathing suit? So what? <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is not my normal routine. It's like, so answer the question. Does that yeah. depend at all how you feel about your current situation? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. One question at a time. That's all that matters. Um, so just really doesn't matter what you do the day before the test. That said, I like going to the movies if you're looking for something to do. Sure. Um, you want to read this one from Justin? Ben and Nathan, I've been listening to you guys and using the demon for the past few months. I understand that the primary metrics law schools look at are GPA and LSAT score. My GPA is an abysmal 2.93. I graduated back in 2006. Wow, okay. No excuses. I was immature and I did not take my undergrad seriously. In short, I screwed off. Okay. You could have just said 2.93. I mean, like <laughs> none of that. We, yep. You didn't need to say abysmal either. You could have just said 2.93. We would have got it. Yeah. Since undergrad, I matured and straightened myself out. I earned a 4.0 in my master's degree program and I have done well in my current career. 
I understand that law schools do not give a shit about my grad school GPA as it will not affect their 509 reports. However, I am hoping that they will consider how I have matured and and can show that I have the academic aptitude to succeed in law school. I am preparing to get the best possible LSAT score I can, as any everyone should. I plan to take my f- first official LSAT in January or February and apply to law school's next cycle. Cycle. I plan to write a GPA addendum that acknowledges my GPA, does not make ex- an excuse, but then highlights how I have changed for the better over the past 16 years. Thoughts? Don't even bother. <laughs> What's the point? They're going to see that you have a master's degree. They're going to see that you have a 4.0 in your master's. Yep. They're going to draw the inference from that, that, oh, this guy screwed off during his undergrad, but has since then gone back to graduate school and done well there. And look at the resume, write your personal statement about all the things you've kicked ass at in your career. Get a really good LSAT score to make them care at all, right? You're going to lower their median with your GPA. You need to raise their median with your LSAT. Then whether you write an addendum or not, it just doesn't matter. It's not, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. Justin says, should I also address this in my personal statement? Absolutely not. No, you're just bringing way too, you're giving way too much (laughs) weight to it. You're self-conscious of it, of course, but let it go and focus on why you're good. Just keep the conversation coming back to why you're good now, not because of what you did in the past, but what we tell everyone, just talk about what you're doing and why you're a kick-ass person at whatever job you're doing. Yeah, just surface the winning part. You need the winning to come out. So the way you do that is not by talking more about the losing, You don't go back to 2006 and talk about how you were smoking weed and fucking around and didn't take your classes seriously. Like they 2.93 says all that. And that's the part that you you can't avoid. They're going to see the 2.93. So then show them other stuff that might catch their attention. You, you know, trying to explain or walk them through how much you have matured it's just not something that they're, they're, they're it's like get to the fucking point if you're so mature then let's talk about your mature achievements killer lsat that's just number 1 i mean killer lsat then write your personal statement about kicking ass at work they're going to have the transcripts from the 4.0 masters yep you, you don't need to You don't need to make the case that you have matured. Instead, just show yourself to be a mature person. It doesn't involve saying I have matured. Move on from your 2.93 so they too can move on from it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Taylor says, greetings, gentlemen, exclamation point. I have been using the demon for two months now, and I am very pleased. I started out with a 142 diagnostic which I would like to contrast with my recent 158 practice test score. Okay, 16 points improvement. LG was my worst section at minus 18 on my diagnostic. Now it is my best at minus seven on my recent practice test. I mean, not only is that awesome, Taylor, but you still have tons of like, again, it's like you can change your life 
again. You already changed your life with 142 to 158, but you can change your life again with 158 to 168. Perfecting your logic games is going to be a big part of that. It's already your best section. It went from your worst to your best, but you can go from your best to perfect. And keep bringing up those other sections. I mean, maybe you're spending so much time on games that you're missing out on opportunities to improve in reading comp and logical reasoning. Yeah. Taylor continues, switching subjects, I'm struggling to make progress on LR. I have consistently scored minus nine on my practice sections, and it seems like the work I'm putting in is not yielding any results. I am familiar with question types, but I have not fully utilized the demon's lessons. Is understanding question types a necessary step in scoring higher in LR? Yes, Ben, I am drilling. No need to recommend that. Thanks, Taylor. Taylor, that's great that you're drilling. That's that's super helpful. Um, I hope you're drilling effectively, which is doing questions, trying to get them 100% correct, and when you get them wrong, really trying to understand the ones you're missing. I, 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 I'm glad we have the drilling tool, but I'm worried that some people are just going through the motions. Yeah. If you're hammering question after question, after question, getting some right, getting some wrong, getting some right, getting some wrong. That's not what we want you to do. We want you to do one question and get it right. And then if you miss it, we want you to get pissed. And I don't care if you don't use our lessons, but I do care if you don't use our explanations. Like, I don't understand how you think you're going to get better if you don't use the explanations. And Taylor, those explanations frequently mention question type. I'm not the type of person who's going to be bullshitting you about question types if I don't think that question types are helpful for understanding that question that you just missed. So is understanding question types a necessary step in scoring higher in LR? Yeah. (laughs) Like there's a difference between a necessary assumption question and a sufficient assumption question. And if you can't immediately recognize the difference in types and also have a method that is different for answering a necessary assumption question than your method for answering a sufficient assumption question, then you're not going to be as good as you could be at logical reasoning. I hope that's clear. I'm doing a takeover, by the way, of one of my upcoming Thursday classes. I'm going to change my whole normal agenda and I'm going to do a sufficient assumption versus necessary assumption boot camp. That was by a request from one of our current students. And uh, so I'm going to do that in, in one of my Thursday night classes sometime soon. Anything more there for Taylor? Nope. Uh, you got this next one. Good evening, Ben and Nathan. I am concerned about applying to law schools because I have four conduct violations from my undergraduate undergraduate institution. Two of these violations were alcohol related between my freshman and sophomore year. The others were noise complaints. I reached out to my undergrad and they informed me that they expunge and no longer disclose this information to schools after June, 2023. Okay. To make, isn't that good? To make matters worse, I received a misdemeanor for DUI in April 2021. Mm. Okay. Uh, Anonymous says, I'm prepared to apply with a DUI on my record 
and take my chances, but my I am concerned that my conduct violations coupled with the DUI will make law schools reject me. Do you think it is wise to wait until the next cycle? Yeah, for yeah, sure. You don't want it, you don't want a a, a pattern, a history a history no. of misconduct. Yeah. You need to get that DUI well behind you. That was only April of 2021. So a little more than a year ago. I mean, maybe you've done all the things already, but if you haven't done all those things already, you know, the serious offender driver education program, paying your fee, doing your community service, whatever. Like if your record is not totally rehabilitated, then yeah, you should wait uh, to apply. I don't think that the the freshman sophomore alcohol things i don't think those are a big deal the noise complaints i don't think those are a big deal having four of those is starts to look kind of bad though and then that dui looks real bad on top of all that other stuff yeah uh anonymous continues i have a 3.34 lsac ugpa and a 166 on record I have taken the LSAT three times already, and I'm taking it again in September. My averages have improved about five points. Okay, so you're in the low 170s, high 160s. As I am prepared to get rejected or receive less than exciting offers and reapply next cycle. That's a fragment. My, my concern is applying this cycle would disclose this information to prospective law schools, and they would be aware that I had violations in the past. Yeah, we already said you shouldn't. Shouldn't apply this cycle. Yeah. And therefore, you could actually have more time uh, if you want to keep bringing up your LSAT score because that's that's the only thing you can really change right now. Yeah. I, I hate the plan of applying now. You've gone from a 153 to a 166 in a matter of months. That's awesome. You're going to take September or I guess you just took September a couple of days ago. And that's great. But I mean, why would you apply while your school is going to tell them about all these four conduct violations? You've already got that DUI to sort out. I think it would be ridiculously short-sighted to apply this cycle. I think you're shooting yourself in the foot if you apply this cycle. I think you should wait till next cycle, like thousand percent. And you should like call the state bar and like that DUI, you need to, you need to treat that like very seriously. That's not something to mess around with at all. You should talk to the state bar, maybe talk to some law schools about how, you know, what you can do to clean that up. Uh, and then, yeah, definitely don't apply until all those conduct violations are going to be off your record. All right. Next one's from Jack. It says, good evening. I'm signed up for this September and October LSAT. Sorry, I am signed up for the September and October LSATs this cycle. I have a 162 on record from the August 2020 LSAT. My original cold diagnostic was a 157, and I am now testing around the 163 to 166 range with my practice tests. Wow. Okay. So that's a lot of not progress. And well, you're, you're taking the test too early. If you have a cold diagnostic of 157, you should wait until you get practice test scores, at least in the one seventies. Yeah. I I think you can get much higher. Oh, for sure. Like if I see somebody with a cold 157, I'm like, okay, you can 
for sure score in the 170s. Just yep. no question about it. So yep. you with the 163 to 166, that's like, honestly, it's like kind of bad. I feel like you should have made, I mean, cause that was, you have a 162 on record from 2020. And now yeah. you're still only 163 to 166, which isn't even 10 points above your cold diagnostic. What have you been doing for prep? I feel like you've been spinning your wheels for two years, mm-hmm. for two years. That's a tragedy. Okay, I graduated from school in the spring of 2022, so I have already waited a year to apply. Irrelevant. Yeah, don't care. I want to get into a top 14 school, preferably Duke, Texas, or NYU. I earned two undergrad degrees in three years with a 4.0. Wow. Was student body president, have strong letters of rec in my LSAC account, and have already accepted a job on the Hill for my gap year. So I feel confident about my application in all areas except (laughs) my LSAT. Which is the most important one. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to wait another year to apply. Too bad. (laughs) It's not about what you want. Don't just don't care. You know, you're writing us for advice. We're going to give you advice about how to do this the right way. And frequently that involves delayed gratification. Jack continues and says, I know I can improve my score into the 170 range. If given more time, what should I do? Do it. Should I take the September and October tests knowing I will get better than a 162, but not the absolute best I could ever do? Having a total number of three LSATs on my record and apply as early as possible? Or would it be better to cancel one of these tests, test a third time later in the cycle after more prep and wait to apply? Or is my best option at this point to wait another cycle and apply early with my highest possible score? That's from Jack. Go ahead, Ben. Yep. Your last idea is your best idea. So wait another cycle, get the best score you can possibly get. Take it when you're ready to take it. Is that November? I don't know. Is it January? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Take and take it multiple times. Get your best score, then apply next cycle and have fun at your job on the Hill. Like stop cramming law school into this arbitrary and self-imposed timeline. Your August 2020 test doesn't even count as one of your three attempts per this cycle. So you've actually got a fresh slate. You can take it three times between now and next August. I'm not even sure if that August 2020 test counts at all. That might be in that period of time that didn't Oh, when they didn't tests. have any restrictions or whatever. Yeah, not that it matters, but. <laughs> not that it matters. You've got three shots at it, Jack. And I, I would take three shots at it. You probably already took September foolishly. Don't take October unless your practice tests are solidly in the 170s. When your practice tests are solidly in the 170s, then take it again, probably two more times. And then apply at the very beginning of next cycle. Good things will happen, Jack, if you do it that way. But you got to let go of this. I graduated in 2022 and I've already taken a gap year. Oh, God forbid. Who cares? You've got a job. It sounds like you're doing cool stuff. Like, why would you rush into this? Yeah. And you have a great GPA. Don't throw it away (laughs) with a bad LSAT score. That's the thing. It's like, 
people very frequently they're like, well, but I'm so strong in all these other areas. And then they want to they want to use that as an excuse to apply with less than a perfect LSAT. And for me and for Ben, I mean, we see you and we go, oh, shit. You could be another student slash listener who we send to Yale. Like, I know you want to go to Duke, UT or NYU. And there's nothing wrong with those schools. <laughs> but with a 4.0 and a 170 something, you could credibly apply to Harvard and Stanford and Yale. Or go to Duke for free or NYU for free. Right. <laughs> and instead it's like, no, but I'm I'm in a hurry though, because I gra- I graduated just <laughs> it's it's almost hilarious. Like I graduated this, I mean way back in the spring of 2022 (laughs) (laughs) wait you mean four months ago yeah slow down jack you want to read this one from uh another anonymous yeah i enjoy your podcasts and your free teachings at elsa demon my diagnostic test is 162 wow is is that a cold diagnostic because that's fucking high it's awful good I'm shooting for 172 plus. As you should be. Yep. I appreciate your help in teaching students how to get a scholarship in law school. Apparently, as a foreign graduate, I am not eligible for a scholarship. Question mark. Is this a fact? Question mark. No. Nope. They don't care. I am an American citizen for over 30 years now. Okay. Not relevant to whether they give you a scholarship. But my bachelor's degree is from France. My healthcare education and profession is from the U.S. and from Europe. It was a free education in France and in the U.S. I was lucky to enjoy such education for free. I am curious about my choices for a, quote, free ride in law school in the U.S. You would know if there is such a thing. Thank you again. It's a real treat to watch you discuss LR on those videos. I always wanted to be a lawyer, and now I understand how the kind of thinking how the kind of thinking you teach is the kind of thinking that I needed most in my life. Never too late to learn the law, my childhood dream. Smiley, sincerely yours. Yeah, as far as I know, they don't discriminate against um, non-US students at all in scholarships. I mean, there's certain like in-state tuition deals and things like that. There might be um, some school-specific scholarships that have to go to US students, but... I've never met an international applicant who was unable to get scholarships with the right LSAT. Yeah. Your undergraduate, if your undergrad is coming from France, then, you know, you might not have an UGPA. Yeah. Your bachelor's from France. So you might not have an undergraduate GPA, but all that does then is it just puts all of all the weight, a hundred percent of the weight onto LSAT. So with your diagnostic, if you get your get yourself up to a 172 plus, then yeah, I think you're going to get multiple full ride offers from schools all over the country. Yep. All right. Last one. Joe says, hi, Nathan and Ben. Blind reviewing in games and logical reasoning is understandable, but I still struggle with reviewing the reading comprehension section. To tell the truth, I do not know how to review the section effectively. This may be a stupid question, and I apologize, semicolon. Nonetheless, I wanted to know how to correctly blind review the reading comprehension section, colon, 
dash. What should I be doing to maximize the most of my <laughs> maximize the most of my review time in reading comp? I'm loving the podcast and all your advice. And thank you for your time. Exclamation point. Joe, how do you review read? How do how do you correctly blind review the reading comp? OK, I would just do it the same. I do the other two sections. I would look at the question I got wrong and the demon kindly does this for you. It doesn't show you what answer you chose. And I would try to answer it again and try to understand what my choices were, what I was debating between and why I was debating between these, those answers. Try to solve the mystery, try to figure out why the correct answer must be true given what was said in the passage. So you, you'll likely need to go back to the passage and look at it and try to figure out why one answer seems to be proven and why some other answers that you might've been considering are not proven. Figure it out, solve the mystery. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, get pissed about the ones that you've missed. Essentially. That's all it really is. Right. It's like the passage had justification for the right answer. And that right answer was right there on the page. The passage did not have justification for that wrong answer. That wrong answer said something that wasn't in the passage, or it might've said something that explicitly violates what was said in the passage. Yeah. Treat it more like logical reasoning almost, right? Like go back and, and appreciate the fact that the answer is explicitly justified by some part of the passage and the wrong answer is either not justified at all. There's no support for it. Or like you just said, there's something explicitly saying, nah, that's false. Same thing. I mean, it's like logic games too, right? There, there, you know, you've learned if you've gotten good at the games, you've learned that there's one just conclusively right answer for every logical reasoning question or sorry for every logic games question the wrong answers are conclusively wrong the right answers are conclusively right and it's easier maybe to see that on the games but it's no less true on the reading comp yeah i think what's happening here is joe is looking at the answers and saying oh okay yeah, D, uh, D, yeah, that's correct. That kind of makes sense. Um, and then, okay, what do I take away from that? But it's like, uh, do you understand it? Can you prove it in court? Can you say, yeah, this is why D is proven and this is why C does not work, is not proven or maybe even proven false. Until you get there, you're not really solving the mystery. You're yeah. just feeling good about things because someone told you that's the right answer. Yeah, what's your case for the right answer and also, what's your case against that wrong answer that you picked the first time through? Can you explain to me what you like, what would you say if your opponent, you know, imagine the politician you hate the most and they were trying to vouch for that answer? What would you say going back to the record to try to defeat that person? I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, it never said anything like that anywhere in the passage, <laughs> but frequently it's going to be like, well, it said it, it, it said something close to that, but it didn't quite go that far. This is more than is justified by these actual facts, but you've got to be able to, you got to know conclusively how you're going to shoot that wrong answer down on review. 
And you've also got to know how you're going to build your affirmative case for why the right answer is right using the record. Yep. You don't necessarily have to go through all that the first time you do the question, especially the part where you're, you know, conclusively eliminating every wrong answer. We just don't have time to do that on logical reasoning and reading comp. I mean, we do look at all five, but we don't take the time to conclusively eliminate all. We're not coming up with the case. We're not coming up with the case. But if you get a question wrong, now the burden's on you to come up with that case because you failed once before. How can you be sure you're not failing again until you come up with the evidence for and against the answers? Yeah. I kind of think, Ben, that people get, I mean, we've talked about this before on the show. I feel like blind review is kind of like a fraught term or I I feel like it leads people astray frequently. I would rather just talk about review instead of talking about blind review. Because I feel like they think that blind review means, well, just do the question again. And if you get it right, then good, move on. Sure, sure. And that's not at all what we're talking about. We're we're talking about like clean up your damn mistake. And to fully clean up your damn mistake, that doesn't mean just do it again. And now you have a better chance of getting it right because you you already know that the wrong answer is wrong. (laughs) That's not... Your chances of getting it right when you do it again, if you know what the wrong answer, that your answer is wrong, it goes up to like 95%. It's like astronomical. Like you should never miss the question the second time through because the most attractive trap you already have eliminated. That's just not what we're talking about. We're talking about something a bit, quite a bit, maybe more sophisticated where you're actually going to be digging into why you picked that wrong answer and what is it about that wrong answer that's 100% wrong and why didn't you pick the right answer and why is that right answer 100% right? That's like actual proper review. Yeah. You can be LSAT famous. Get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Best uh, help team in the world, by the way. Thank you, Jen, Haley, everybody else on the help team. Check out our other podcast, please. LSAT Demon Daily. It's five days a week. That was episode 368 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.